Hey, what's going on, you JDHDs? It is Marshall, and thank you so much for listening to this episode of JDHD, a podcast for lawyers. I'm so excited for our conversation today. Uh, We're going to talk about ADHD myths. We'll talk about time optimism and uh, a never boring guarantee. Even better, I'm talking about high IQ, ADHD's friends and neighbors, and the single feature of ADHD that we'd like to eradicate from the planet. I'm talking to a magnificent licensed psychologist who specializes in evaluating and treating the hard cases of adults and children with ADHD. He's got his PhD from my beloved alma mater, the University of Minnesota, a master's in psychology, and he even trained under the godfathers of ADHD themselves, Ned Hallowell and John Ratey at Harvard Medical School. He's a national consultant for Fortune 100 companies. He's the, the 2018 recipient to the Minnesota Psychological Association's Distinguished Elders in Psychology Award. And he speaks at conferences and schools and for professional organizations. Loves driving his super fast Harley Davidson and has ADHD himself. So uh, I can't wait for this conversation with Dr. Gary Johnson. Coming to you from the deep and weird and ADHD-fueled recesses of Marshall Lichty's neocortex, this is JDHD, a podcast for lawyers with ADHD where we talk about finally getting stuff done. We help you optimize your law practice, your business, your life, and your brain. We hyper-focus on ideas, tips, and tricks for every lawyer with ADHD, whether they know they have it or not. And now, your host, a guy who once held someone's fake eyeball in his palm, Marshall Lichty. Dr. Johnson, thank you so much for joining me on uh, on the podcast. It is really a pleasure to have you, and I have been excited to uh, have this conversation with you for quite some time. Tell me, first of all, how did you get into the business of treating folks with ADHD? No, that's a, I'll try to make it a short story. So um, as a psychologist, I was trained to do predominantly therapy, which I did and I loved. But I also have this view of psychology is that one of our jobs is to give back and that as a professional, we need to give to the community. And so I would take on a volunteer project every year. So one year I got a call from a former student of mine who they had worked really hard to get the law passed to with Native American families to when they pulled a kid out of a Native American family for child protection to have them put in a similar cultural family, which would be a Native family. And so that law was passed, but what wasn't passed was any funding to train new foster parents. So my job for the year from volunteer job was that I worked predominantly with the new foster parents and with the kids, but mostly helping the foster parents know how to be good at what they did and dealing with some kids that had some kind of significant problems. So for reasons that we'll talk about later, I've, I'm at the end of the year and I haven't done all of my records. And so now it's time that I've got to do them. And so I'm putting all the records together. And I had a bunch of foster kids and foster parents that came through that year, but I had about 26 kids. And out of 26 kids that came through, 26 of them had been previously diagnosed with ADHD. 100%? 
100%. That would be like you are traveling to LA, your plane stops in Las Vegas, you get off, you put a quarter in the machine and you win a million bucks. It's statistically impossible. That is astonishing. Yeah. And it has a lot to do with where we were with diagnosis at the time and also having to do with certain groups of people being overdiagnosed. So I got all upset about it and I went to um, the University of Minnesota to this Larry Greenberg, who was a psychiatrist, who had come up with one of the first tests to look at kind of ADHD type behaviors. And I followed him out of his class down the stairs and in his parking lot. And by the time his window was closed, he agreed to let me use the TOVA which was his test to test these kids, which I did and found out that more than half of them, when you really applied the criteria of ADHD, didn't have it. So at that point, I was on my soapbox and bandwagon and I became what was known in the community as a rabble rouser because <laughs> I would talk to anybody I could about the fact that the diagnosis was real, but we needed to be careful with it and cautious. You might have even been hyper-focused on it, if I could be so bold. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> this obviously leads into a career in treating kids and ultimately adults with ADHD. One of the things that I, I'm most interested in and that I think is really critical is that we at least touch on some of the myths. And you touched on some of them, right? There's this perception that ADHD is wildly overdiagnosed in some populations. There's a perception that it's wildly underdiagnosed in some populations. I know there are data to back up both of those, at least in certain cohorts. And I'd be curious to hear about some of the myths that you think are most important that exist out in the world for this cohort of people that you deal with on a daily basis. Okay. One of the myths is, doesn't everybody have a little ADHD? Right. I had an ADHD day. Yeah. Here's the deal. All of us have times where we can't focus or we're distractible. The issue with ADHD is it's not only having a bunch of those symptoms, but it's also that it has to be impairing in one's life. So I could have horrible distractibility, but if I'm able to do my life okay, then I don't have impairment, thus I don't have it. So it's not about a little ADD. It's about ADD that significantly impairs somebody. And that can be impairs them at work, impairs them in their social life, impairs them in their marriage. It could be a bunch of different ways, but it has to be impairing. This idea that, you know, we're kind of using the term now to describe a bunch of times where we're just distracted or can't focus. And what we're really doing is minimizing the disorder and the tremendous effect it has on people's lives. But you say that we all have these moments. It can't be ADHD in adults, though, because ADHD is a little boy's problem, right? Hyper little kids bouncing off the walls? Yep, you got it. So... That comes to myth number two, which is that adults can have ADHD, which is almost as upsetting or disgusting as myth number three, which is if you're smart, you can't have ADD. But if we stick with the kids, what we know is that ADHD, and this is one of the ways we as a profession try to confuse everybody, the disorder is attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And then you either have predominantly inattentive, predominantly hyperactive, or both. 
but everybody has ADHD. That's just the name of the disorder anymore. That's the name of the disorder. And it drives people nuts because it's like, my kid's not hyperactive in the least. He's kind of a couch potato. But the kid has horrible problems with paying attention. You know, the H is there in the title, but then we define mostly inattentive, mostly hyperactive, or both. You can have. And so, thinking about adults with ADHD that do have a hyperactive type, are they bouncing off the walls? Do they bounce off the walls in a meeting room or in their homes, or does the hyperactivity take on a different shape as you grow into adulthood? Yes. So, one thing is is that if you're diagnosed with as a child, predominantly hyperactive. We've got a fairly good percentage of those people that will basically outgrow the diagnosis. So rather, if you have hyperactivity, by the time you become an adult and you go through the puberty of the brain, which is about age 24 to 26 based on gender, then the hyperactivity will dismiss in about 50 plus percent of folks. If you're diagnosed with inattentive type or you're diagnosed with inattentive and hyperactive, research tells us that that does not go away. So if you have inattentive as a kid, you have a high probability of having that directly affecting you and impairing you as an adult. So we know that adults, at least half of adults, but of the ones that are inattentive the majority continue to have impairing symptoms as they become an adult. So, and this strikes me as particularly problematic, not just for children. I care about the children. Of course, they are our future and all of those things. But I'm also very interested in it in the context of adults. And my suspicion is inattentive type is particularly challenging to diagnose because oftentimes it is not a little boy who's bouncing off of the walls. It's actually Maybe the avatar is of a young girl who, instead of bouncing off the walls, is actually just sitting there daydreaming. And um, if she is particularly smart, the daydreaming might not even have a problem. It might not even show up in her productivity at school or at work or wherever else. But it might still have a number of outcomes that are challenging or less than optimal anyway. So let's say 30 years ago, when I first started doing this, the ratio for boys to girls was about five to one. Wow. It's now about 2.5 to 1. So more boys than girls. And if you're going to say overall, what group is getting overdiagnosed? I would say hyperactive boys. Mm -hmm. And what group is getting underdiagnosed? And again, this is real general terms, would be girls who are inattentive. Because still in our society, if a girl is not performing in school up to the capability we'd like, it tends to get passed. Where if boys aren't performing, they tend to get noticed more. Obviously, the hyperactive kids get noticed more because they're a pain for the teachers. And did I hear you correctly that if one has inattentive type, that is they're much less likely to mature out of that. It's the hyperactive diagnosis that that tends to, you tend to age out of, and it's that inattentive diagnosis that's already underdiagnosed because it's hard to find that probably someone will not go away. So what I'm trying to get at is envisioning in my head this avatar of a young girl in first or second grade who is bright and inattentive and a daydreamer who never gets diagnosed with ADHD and then moves into a career potentially as, say, a lawyer, for example, and might still struggle with some of those things. And the odds that she has since graduated out of 
that disorder as that she may have experienced as a youngster is relatively small. Correct. And you're bringing up, let's talk about the IQ factor. Let's, I'm curious. This is a big thing that we don't like to talk about because in the research, it's factual, but it's hard to say to somebody, you had more problems with ADD as a young person because you weren't as smart. But the corollary is true. If we look at age of diagnosis versus IQ on a graph, we would see almost a perfect curve of a line, meaning that the older somebody gets that they're diagnosed, the higher the IQ. And the reason for that is kind of obvious, I think, which is if you are smarter, you can figure out more ways to compensate for the issues that you're experiencing. So as somebody is, some people, for instance, will have ADD and they'll get through elementary school. It's not till they hit junior high. There's other people that it won't happen really till high school. And there's definite people that it doesn't happen till they get into graduate school or their professional degree. And then they kind of hit the wall or it might be even into their career. So in a group of attorneys, which we generally think are above average in IQ, we probably have a higher proportion of adults who have issues with ADHD that haven't been diagnosed that are impairing. All right. So that is fascinating to me. And we're going to have to talk about that again, because that is that is just really, really interesting to me. And I think it's actually part of the reason that I'm here. I think that there is a, I think that that likelihood that there's a number of folks out there in our profession who have a high IQ and who probably have struggled with attention for the majority of their lives, but have passed and are now at the point where maybe some of the scaffolding is starting to fall down around them or those tools that they have built or just relying on the IQ might not be enough to help them in their in their career or in their law school experience. Those are the folks that, you know, among others that I want to be talking to is listen to that voice and hear that they're you know, hear what it feels like to have some inattention and, and to, quote unquote, struggle with ADHD. So I want to do two things. I want to move off of high IQ for just a second, because I want to talk about what is ADHD and why is it that high IQ could help someone make it look like they don't have ADHD? All right. So in broad strokes, ADHD predominantly involves the frontal lobe area of the brain, and it looks like more of the right side prefrontal area of the brain. So that's right behind your right forehead. That's the part of the brain that we use to do boring, repetitive, and familiar. That's one thing of what drives parents and teachers nuts about ADHD is that how can so-and-so play a video game for two hours, but when it comes time to do spelling, 10 minutes is all they can tolerate. Well, it's because the video game is very interesting and stimulating, where the spelling for them is boring. And so remember, you're doing boring, repetitive, familiar. Drafting written discovery, for example, as opposed to maybe standing up in front of the court and making an argument. You got it folks will have trouble with those repetitive tasks when they have ADHD. Now, the example I always use is I love motorcycles. And so when I'm changing the oil on my motorcycle or working on it, I don't make any mess. When I do it with my car, I will always make some kind of mess. 
And the reason is, is that because I love my motorcycle. So then I decided, okay, I know how to trick this. I'm going to pretend that my car is my motorcycle. I still make mistakes. (laughs) (laughs) So you can't really trick yourself out of what's boring and repetitive. So brief aside for the motorcycle riders out there, what kind of motorcycle do you drive or prefer? What's your favorite? What is the favorite motorcycle that you've ever owned in your life? Uh, actually it's the one I have now, which is a vintage Harley racer. So what does that mean? It means it's old and it goes very fast. All right. I want to do two things. One of them is I, I quickly want to hit on one more myth because this is one that I, that I worry about and I think about. It's actually two myths. It's, it's one A and one B. Medication is the only answer to ADHD and medication is never the answer to ADHD because of whatever reason. Uh, it's highly addictive or it's a stimulant. It's like methamphetamine, blah, blah, blah. So here's here's still the area where I'm doing my rabble rousing, which is that if somebody has mild to moderate ADHD, which remember it's impairing, but in mild to moderate range, we can get a good treatment response by doing a bunch of environmental and dietary and physical things. If somebody has moderate to severe ADHD, then we're looking at medication and still doing all the other things. So rather, if you're looking for optimum effect and you've got somebody with extreme ADHD, you're looking most likely at medication along with a really good individualized treatment program. Now, that's not to say that people who are against medication, don't want to take medication, can't still treat the ADHD and do so in somewhat of an effective way. But my experience generally is if they're, they're moderate to severe, then we're looking at adding medication to the regimen for treatment in order to get the best outcome. And as I recall what the literature says, in general, for those moderate to severe cases, the efficacy of one or the other of the two main stimulant medications used most commonly to treat ADHD and its symptoms generally works in a relatively high percentage of folks. Is that a fair summary? That's fair. I think the research is now saying we've got the two different groups, which is mostly methylphenidate, which is like Ritalin and Concerta. And then we have the group of medications, which are the mixed amphetamines, which is like Adderall and Vyvanse. So those are the both stimulant medications. And the hit rate for those helping with ADD is one or the other, somewhere around 60 to sometimes they'll say 70%. I think that's high. Okay. There are other meds for ADHD, but they're treating the same symptoms for a very different type of kind of brain activity. So there are other options. Got it. Okay. So we talked about brain activity there. That's my cue because I want to move into two quick things. One of them is how does looking at brain activity make itself useful in your practice? And specifically, I'm talking about brain scans and QEEG, for example. I know that QEEG and other brain scan isn't standard of care. It's not required to diagnose. But my understanding is that you feel that it is a useful tool. Can you talk more about brain scanning and why it's useful in diagnosing ADHD? Okay. So this story is that I got into this class of experts on ADHD throughout the world, and it was led by Drs. Hollowell and Rady, 
who both used to be professors at Harvard and are known for being experts on adult ADD. Wrote the the literal text, you know, the, the quintessential driven to distraction together and... And delivered from distraction and yeah, yep. all that stuff, which kind of got the whole, broke home the whole thing that adults can have ADD. Who, interestingly enough, these two guys run or ran at some point the ADD clinic for Harvard and MIT. Hmm. Interesting. So you can you can tell that their orientation is definitely not in the category that if you're smart, you can't have ADD. Right. Okay. If you pass the bar, you don't have ADD. That's not true. <laughs> I've told that story on this podcast before, but that is literally what, okay. what my first, uh, you know, diagnosing uh, healthcare provider said to me. We got through my social sure. and background history oh, and yeah. she said, uh, wait, you went to law school? Yeah. You graduated? Yeah. You took the bar? Yeah. You passed the bar? Yeah. You practice as a lawyer? Yeah. You don't have ADHD. Yeah, that's, of course, that's the diagnostic question that we have for attorneys. If they are an attorney, they can't have it. And we <clears throat> we know that's a crock of BS. But the sad thing about that is that those old myths that some of my, the professionals believe are folks who haven't kept up with the research. They're not really well-informed, but it does damage because... There are people that need help and are really affected and they don't get it because of that kind of myth. Sorry, I distracted you and you, you did. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> I don't remember what I was well, saying. Well, I will remind you, the question that I want to talk about briefly was the QEEG. I know you use a brain scan. You literally put this goofy thing on a person's head and it does its thing. It puts magic in the brain and then the brain uh, spits out things. And then you look at the things on a screen and next thing you know, you have useful information. Tell me a little bit about why you put the thing on the head. <laughs> okay. So the story is I had been training, I had trained with Hollowell and Rady a bunch of times, but then they had this class of experts and I, you had to apply for it. And they were all like, you know, professors in universities across the world. It was done in English. And but I got myself into the class and I was, I definitely did not feel like I belonged. So part of the class was that you were to write up a research proposal for if you were going to research something having to do with ADHD, what would it be? And then the deal was that there were 25 people in the class that Hollowell would pick one of the studies and Rady would pick the other. And then they would help sponsor those studies. Mm. So I have ADD myself, which how I learned that is a very interesting story, but we'll put that <laughs> off. But I have ADD myself. So I wasn't going to be the only person in the class who didn't fill out their research ideas because I would thought that would look really bad. So <laughs> I, of course, put it off until five days before it was due. And it was supposed to be, you know, this elaborate proposal. Procrastination. Oh, you got it. And so I did this proposal to study the effect of brain scanning and specifically looking at quantitative or digital EEGs in order to prove that it was like snake oil, that it was malarkey, because I was totally skeptical. Can I guess what happened? Despite your imposter syndrome and the feeling that you didn't belong and the fact that you procrastinated, you probably knocked it out of the park. And I'm guessing that this is 
this is the worst case. So I got a call from the person who was administering this course. And she said, you know, we have something that's never happened before, which is they both went through and picked a study and they both picked yours. <laughs> and I had to be honest then and say, you know what? I don't have any way of doing this research. I just proposed what I thought would be a cool. Ned Hollowell called up the company that was producing the technology for EEGs, acted like we had Thanksgiving together every year. They flew out to the <laughs> office and trained our staff on how to give EEG and how to give a quantitative EEG. So that's how I got into it. And so I'm all set to prove that it doesn't work. And I start noticing that it's helpful. And I notice more and more that it's helpful. And I also notice that the information we're getting out of the QEG is almost like the person who was reading it for us was hired a private investigator and followed him around because there's no way they could know it just based on gender and age. But it was really helpful. And again, you know, you have to get the big picture here, which is, the clinic that I work in, predominantly we see folks who have had a bunch of assessments, tried a bunch of meds, and it hasn't worked. So the typical person has, there's something missing or something got misdiagnosed. So for our group, it turns out that the QEG is very, very helpful. Now, it's FDA approved now as having a biomarker for ADHD, which really isn't. It's a biomarker for what is the probability that stimulant medication will be the best treatment in the long run. Hmm. Okay. In addition to that, so basically uh, EEG is looking at like the typical test that neurologists look to use seizures. So it's got 24 electrodes that are on the head and it's measuring brain activity. We don't do it under seizure conditions, so we don't flash lights at people or make them not sleep but it's looking at normal kind of activity in the brain. So each of ours is read by one of this guy, Dr. Drodes in Colorado, who is an Air Force psychologist, probably one of the top three to five people in the country that's an expert on QEG. Mm. So he does the reading for our clinic. And I would be honest with you to tell you that it's not just the QEG, it's his ability to read it because he knows so much more than what you can get just off the reading. But the idea here is that not only are there different types of ADHD as far as looking at hyperactive, inattentive, but there's also different brain activity. And when you think about it, to me, it's logical, which is that we know that the typical, right out of the box, ADHD person has slow activity in their right prefrontal lobe of their brain. So stimulant medication is likely going to work. However, there's a subset of people who have too high of activity in that area of their brain. And when they're given a stimulant, it doesn't, it isn't pretty at all. And so they need a type of medicine that actually helps calm the activity in that part of the brain those folks will often have some anxiety that goes along with the AD, mm -hmm. which fits with that fast activity. And then to make it more complex, we've got folks where they may have the slow activity in the right area of the brain, prefrontal side, but then there is high activity in a different area of the brain. And that's where things get really tricky because we have to 
treat that high activity and help that kind of calm down before we do the treatment for the attentional mm-hmm. issue. So it's fairly complex, but the idea being it's not as simple as just saying, oh, 70% of people respond to stimulants. Sure, that's first line. The research supports that in probably a good 60% of the cases. But we also means that 30 to 40% of the cases that doesn't work. So we have to look further. You're listening to JDHD, a podcast for lawyers with ADHD with Marshall Lichtie. Well, and a lot of what you've said really resonates with me, which is that having a individualized treatment plan and an and a individualized diagnosis is an important part of sorting all of this out. And that has been, you know, my experience too, because I had a bunch of anxiety and some depression that was showing up and we weren't sure if that was causative of my attention issues or if it was a, a reflection of them. I have, this is not a humble brag because I have some really incredible markers for how I'm in not just the first percentile, the 0.00th percentile of people in particular types of brain function, but I also have some indicators of high IQ in a couple of little places. And so for me, the idea of treatment and treating a spectrum type challenge with one big broad brush, whether it's medication or other treatment therapy, um, environmental stuff, seems too blunt. It doesn't seem like you can, it, it seems challenging. So anyway, what you're saying resonates with me because I know that it, that sometimes ADHD comes with some friends and neighbors, and that's actually where I want to go. You've hinted at the idea of anxiety. We also know that anxiety isn't alone in hanging out with folks with ADHD. As it happens, some of these happen to be comorbidities of being a lawyer, as it turns out. There's some new research that came out in 2016 <laughs> that suggests there's actually a very strange correlation between comorbidities of ADHD and comorbidities of being a lawyer. That um, We see similar pathologies in them. One of them, uh, elevated, sometimes dramatically risk of drug and alcohol abuse, uh, anxiety, depression, some a, a little bit of sensory processing disorder, but we have high levels of hypersensitivity, we can call it, and sort of that fight or flight, aggressive or run away from interaction, shame. All of these things, these can be, and these are actually supported by the research that there are friends and neighbors that come along with ADHD. Tell me about those comorbidities a little bit. All right. So about 40% of folks that have ADHD, and I'm talking about that actually have it, 40% will have a separate diagnosable learning disorder. So they will have a hard time with reading, with writing, with math, or with visual spatial things. So first of all, we've got almost half of the folks with ADD having some kind of learning issue separate from the attention. So, and this is all because there's, you know, ADHD is highly genetic and there are other disorders. How, how highly? Well, you know, it's like if you've got a person with ADHD, you have a high probability that the one of the parents and one of the grandparents also had symptoms of, okay. you know, the twin studies where you get identical twins, it's like around 80 to 85% of one twin will have it if the other does. Another brief aside, Dr. Johnson, before we got on the podcast was telling me that he spent the weekend with his twin, identical twin, six month old grandsons. 
And uh, and so I'm just imagining, you know, the chaos, regardless of whether they have ADHD or not. Six year old twin sounds like a complete handful. No, so. no, six months six, old. Six months old. Six months old. And believe it, I'm sure they'll be more busy when they're six years, <laughs> but it taps me out, but I love them. So you have this heredity uh, and, and genetic component. There's a genetic issue. And then as an adult, if somebody comes in as an adult and they have not been diagnosed with ADHD and they do not have either some depression or anxiety, that would be a point against having an ADD diagnosis. Say that again. That's fascinating. If you have ADHD and it hasn't been diagnosed, it is expected that you would either have some depression or anxiety that went along with it. Why? Because you have been dealing with a disabling condition for years, not knowing what it was. So it's not, you can't do it very effectively. And it's affecting your ability to be productive. And so what will people do? They will get stressed out. They'll get depressed. They'll get anxious. Anything that helps produce more dopamine in the brain is helpful. So they may drink, they may use pot, they may do dangerous things, they may be explosive. But all of those things are sometimes comorbid, but also you have to realize there's an impairment that comes from not knowing if you've had ADD. And so there are these other cases of depression and anxiety where maybe those things have been treated very well, but it never is real effective because what's driving that is actually the attention issues. Yeah, that is something that hits me, you know, right in my core. That is the single most important part of my ADHD diagnosis is I'm not the type to go back and try and make excuses or whatever, but it puts a lens on my experience growing up until I was 42 years old that now makes more sense. There's context there that helps me appreciate that it wasn't just in my imagination or that the feeling that I let someone down again or I forgot that again or I didn't finish that project again or I procrastinated again may have some biological underpinnings that let me be a little bit less shameful about it. And so, for you know, for me, that feels like a really important realization. Well, I think anything in our life that helps us make sense of our behavior and our actions is helpful because, you know, we all like to feel like there's some predictability. And with, if you have ADHD, there's a lot of unpredictability that happens in life. So I want to stay on this friends and neighbors and comorbidities track, but I actually kind of want to look at it from a different angle, too. So my understanding is that there are a bunch of disorders or pathologies that can complicate attention or even resemble sort of the attention deficit stuff that we use as diagnostic indicators of ADHD. Say a little bit about what that interplay is, right? If if someone has anxiety and it is causing inattention, it's possible that the anxiety, when treated effectively, will help resolve some of the attention issues. On the flip side, it is also possible that someone who has ADHD may have anxiety and treating the ADHD may have a positive impact on the anxiety, for example. Is this fair? And say more about it. Yes. And this is where when we talk about diagnosis, it's really not about getting the diagnosis. It's what people need is to come up with a plan that's individualized for them. So here's the example. 
I think about it is who's in the driver's seat of the bus. Okay. Is it anxiety or is it attention deficit? For instance, there are people who where ADHD is the main thing and they become anxious because they're used to missing things like deadlines or losing something or remembering all the documents they have to get in. And so they have this anxiety because they're becoming over-scrupulous because part of the disorder is that you are disorganized and you forget stuff. So the anxiety makes sense and it's actually functional and it's a result that's predictable from the ADHD. For people, for instance, that are in school, there will be anxiety, the normal type of, you know, anxiety we can see, the social anxiety or performance anxiety. But in the kids where the anxiety is directly kind of connected with the attention is they're much more worried about school, much less worried about social things. They can get in front of people and do fine. So rather, the anxiety is about, am I not going to do well on this test I've studied for? Am I not going to be able to succeed? That makes a ton of sense. Anything, any of the other really common friends and neighbors that we haven't talked about or that are important to at least touch on uh, for people who might come to their ADHD from a different spot than I did? I came here from anxiety, but people come here from a bunch of places. Okay, so there's much higher rates of bipolar than what with that occur with ADD than what's in the normal population. It's almost twice. The anxiety and depression we mentioned, the learning disabilities. And then there's some other things, like I mentioned, that kind of difficulty with visual spatial, which is kind of being able to be organized in literally time and space. And I would say those are the major areas. Can you quickly say a little bit more about that visual spatial piece? What does it mean to not be organized in time and space? Like, what does that look like in a person? Okay, for instance, there's cognitive function where I'm able to locate things, not just as far as attention goes, but in relative to one another. So rather, if I have a problem in this area, it's harder for me to see the big picture. It's harder for me, for instance, GPS would be my best friend because it's hard for me to actually have a mental map in my head of where things are in space. So it's a different kind of factor on organization than what we typically find with someone with ADHD. You talked about space. Tell me just a little bit more about time because my wife calls me a time optimist. And (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Okay. So... I'll say two things about time. One is estimating the amount of time that one has left before they need to leave to do something. And two, estimating how long things will take. So for many people with ADHD, they are horrible time estimators. So actually, if we ask them, tell me when five minutes has gone by, half hour, an hour, they will be consistently off compared to a group of folks that don't have ADHD. So the idea of time passage and the correct estimate of that, that's not very good. But then we've also got how long will it take me to do something before I need to leave? And so, for instance, they are getting ready to leave for work and they decide, okay, I've got time to send those three bills off or do these three emails, or maybe I've got even got time to shine my shoes today. 
when reality they're late and they're going to be even later and they estimate it's going to take them three minutes to shine their shoes and it takes 12. So they're not good at estimating the length of time. So they can't estimate time overall as far as where they are and how much time has passed, but then also how long something will take. So second thing about time has to do with foresight and hindsight, which is folks with ADHD have a hard time looking back on what they've done. So this is now hindsight, looking back through time to learn from their errors. They also have a hard time projecting into the future and using foresight in order to figure out what exactly do I need to do and what kind of time sequence and order in order to get something done by the time it's due. Project management, project planning, for example. Right, which is not to say there aren't some people that can do it great. I'm just saying that the majority of folks with ADHD struggle with hindsight and foresight. Our website, thejdhd.com, makes this podcast possible. Sign up for a completely free 10-day email course, introducing you to ADHD for Lawyers at thejdhd.com slash course. So I'm going to uh, take a little tangent here before we move into a couple little parts that I, I really want to make sure we hit on. The tangent is just a story. My little guy uh, has ADHD too. And his favorite author right now is a guy named Dave Pilkey. Dave Pilkey wrote a number of books, not least of which is the Dogman series and also the Captain Underpants series. Dave Pilkey has ADHD himself, and he was just in town to give a little talk and hand out some signed books. And we got to meet him, and it was very, very cool. It was the afternoon, and we were getting ready to um, goof around. His younger brother was down for bed, and he wanted to play baseball. And so we were going to start playing baseball. And all of a sudden, in a moment of mindfulness that very rarely hits me, I thought, you know what would make sense for us to do right now? It's to plan out what the next several hours of our life are going to look like. Sitting down together. And the show started at 6.30. So I literally started with a 6.30 notation on a piece of paper. And I said, what happens immediately before that? And how long is it going to take? And immediately before that, and immediately before that, and immediately before that. And it helped us together. And and it was really driven by him. And and it was because he was so excited to see Dave Pilkey. Like the idea of not being there when Dave Pilkey took the stage to talk about a superhero in his underwear was like absolutely abhorrent to him. And so it was really easy to say, okay, buddy, we actually only have about 33 minutes to play baseball. And I'm going to set a timer. And in 33 minutes, we have to start up cleaning. And we, you know, we set out seven minutes to clean and we set out another 30 minutes to get ready and take a shower and all those things. And we magically appeared at the theater moments before we planned to. And just as Dave Pilkey was coming out on stage to delight an auditorium full of children and a lot of their ADHD parents. And it took a type of inspiration and thoughtfulness and mindfulness that is so rare in my life and his. We should have been an hour late for that thing. And we would have been, we would have been playing baseball. We would have been both unshowered. We would have barely been wearing clothes. We would have stumbled into the theater. Um, you know, it would have been just a, a burning hot mess. And so um, that for me, that timing aspect of it, my wife calling me a time optimist, and then the idea of actually sitting down and very intentionally planning out a, you know, what the next horizon looks like 
is super useful and super important. And that's a big part of treating ADHD, which is knowing what are my limits, but also what I'm good at, how I can use my strengths to compensate for that. What kind of adjustments can I make in the way I do things? Now, not making fun of you or anything, but what you just described is what the normal person does without thinking about it. Okay, I'm, and I'm not fun. I mean, you know, but you have to make it, you have to be mindful about it and purposeful because if you let your kind of normal time management happen, you would have missed the presentation. And this is where I start talking about the idea of margin. Right. So my ADHD diagnosis has allowed me to start being mindful and thoughtful of some of the challenges that I have in my life and where I used to live a life of reactivity. It felt like everything was a burning hot emergency. And the only way I could get anything done was if it was due today or if it was actually due yesterday. And I, you know, could could put a figurative gun to my head and convince myself that now was the only time in the world that it could possibly get done. I couldn't I couldn't get going on it and I didn't have any margin. So if I missed it, or if an emergency came up, or if I had to be with my kids, or if I had, you know, if, if anything came up to goof up that carefully orchestrated, inflammation-filled, reactive life that I was living, there was no margin. There was no give in my, you know, there's no wiggle room in my life, and it made it more stressful and more anxiety-provoking. And the fact that I now have this ADHD diagnosis, and I've been working through it with medication and therapy and a coach and mindfulness and a wife who is you know wildly supportive and thoughtful and dripping with executive function skills um you know we now have pieced together some of those things that help us create margin in our lives i can now enjoy some things and you don't know this but one of the singular purpose of this podcast and everything around it is the idea that i want to create 1 million worry free nights and weekends for lawyers and i really think that these tools and this scaffolding that we build around ADHD is the way that we do that. That's the way that we earn space. It's the way we buy ourselves some wiggle room to make mistakes or to be late or to have something not go our way and still not have it completely throw us for a loop. So anyway, that is... Um, That's fantastic. I love it. <laughs> it's a good goal. Let me just talk about a couple things real quick here. One is when I'm talking to an adult... And I'm assessing whether or not it's worthwhile to do an assessment. One of the things that I listen for, and it's this is like I'm a geeky research guy, but I listen for this intangible, which is a kind of frustration that the person has had for years, that they feel like they can't do what they're capable of. It can't accomplish what they really feel like they can do. And oftentimes that if I don't see that, I really question whether or not they have attention deficit. Because that's one of the things that comes, that's the impairing part of not being able to really get myself to do what I know I need to do and what I'm capable of doing. So even though there might be people that you and I would say they're wildly successful, they still feel and that they aren't doing what their capacity is. And that is a really discouraging, frustrating way to live life. Amen. 
that's what we're trying to do. I mean, that is that is literally the thrust behind this challenge that we have in our profession, right? We have, I call it a bit of an iceberg problem here. We know that there are people who have ADHD and are diagnosed and they're out and they're talking about it and they're treating it. There is a world of people in our profession who likely have it and likely have what you just described is this discrepancy, this variance between what they know is their capacity and their performance. And it's this, it's that delta they're hyper aware of. And I don't care how far they've gone in their career, how successful they are. When you're aware of that delta and the frustration that comes with not being able to close that delta despite working harder, right? You you work harder and you work harder and you work harder and you still say, I, I haven't closed the delta. I haven't made any headway. And why isn't it working? And that's the frustration that um, that resonates with me when you talk about that. That's why I love that book, You Mean I'm Not Lazy, Stupid, or Crazy, written by the two women who discovered they had ADD as adults. And they talked about the conclusions they had reached, which if you think about it, is the logical, healthy, appropriate conclusion, which if I'm not able to do what I think I'm capable, then I must not really be trying. Or maybe I'm not that smart, or maybe I'm nuts. And I think they did a great job of presenting those are the conclusions that we reach. And then from those conclusions, we reach other conclusions. But we've started with bad data. I like that. I like I like framing it as bad data. I mean, I hate framing it as bad data, but that's a thing. Uh, here's what I want to do. I want to do two things. One of them is um, tell you that this has been magnificent. We have not spent one minute talking about your ADHD. Uh, and I am fascinated by the idea of another professional who has made it through a career, uh, who was diagnosed and, you know, now has helped to build that scaffolding not only around himself, but helps other people do it. That is a magical and, and a magnificent story and one that, um, you know, is personally really important to me. And so I want to thank you for all of the work that you're doing uh, for people, not just in our community, but uh, elsewhere, too. And. I also just want to I want to close really by asking you just a couple of questions, and uh, I think you're uniquely situated to answer them. I, I call them my magic wand questions, and there are two. Do you want to start with the the good or the bad? Your choice. The bad. The bad. If you had a magic wand, and right now you pulled it out of your drawer and you waved it, and magically could disappear any single part about ADHD in the world for all of the people. What would that thing that you would want to disappear be? Oh, no question. Shame. And this comes from my heart and from working with a lot of folks is that, you know, this is overall a group of people who really want to do well, want to be helpful, want to, you know, be good parents or good spouses or good business people and or whatever, good attorneys. And the ADD has gotten in the way. And they because it is something that they care about and they're passionate about, they feel horrible about themselves because they couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. All right. Different drawer, different wand. This one is the magical wand that says you can take one of the ADHD superpowers, of which there are many, and you can flick your magic wand and all over the world, everyone will get a little piece of this magic. What is the one thing about ADHD that you wish everybody had? An intolerance for boredom. 
<laughs> which is that, you know, as bad as it is to have a partner with ADHD, it does guarantee that life will never be boring. <laughs> so, you know, that fact that we are always finding something interesting and exciting and we're passionate and I think everybody could use some of that. I was joking in a, in a recent episode, actually for anybody who's listening right now, it will be an episode later, stay tuned. Um, but I was joking that maybe we aren't the ones with the disorder. Maybe it's the people who have, uh, you know, in, who have boredom acceptance syndrome and, uh, oh, I see. It, you know, the, it's the rest of the world that uh, just t- tolerates the, uh, you know, the boring. Yeah, could be. Doctor, um, again, I couldn't be more thankful, not just for uh, your coming on today and your willingness and your vulnerability and all those things. Um, You've talked about a lot of things that are important to people in your community here. We're going to reach a bunch of lawyers that need to hear about this and the work that you do in Minnesota broadly uh, and for people that I know and love. Your work is important and you are part of the solution to shame. And so you are wielding the magic wand and we are really, really thankful. And for anyone out there who would like to talk to Dr. Johnson, you can reach him at his email address, Gary at calm, C-A-L-M dot U-S. Uh, That's the best way to get a hold of him. And, you know, he, he has a lot to offer. And I think it's a unique blend of his uh, ADHD, but also a, a, a something that has been in his career since the beginning, as we talked about, which was this desire to give back and this desire to help change the world around him. And um, like I said, doctor, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so very much for coming on. And we will absolutely have to have you on again to talk about your ADHD and, uh, and some other things too, that I'm just fascinated by. Thank you. Thanks so much, doctor. So that is Gary Johnson. And I just can't get enough of that guy. It was great to talk with him, and I really appreciated his uh, insights about a whole bunch of things, including the fact that if you haven't been diagnosed yet as an adult, and if you have it, it's expected that you're going to have depression and anxiety, and that the older you are when you get diagnosed, it's likely that uh, the higher IQ you have, that's a lesson to all of us. Listen, I want you to be a part of this community. I want to be in touch with you. I want to connect with you. So do what you need to do to do that. I would love it if you would rate this podcast and review it. I would love if you would sign up for the 10-day email course at thejdhd.com slash 10-day-course. I would love to hear you uh, send an email. You can reach me at marshall at thejdhd.com. And I want to get to know you. I promise I will answer every single email that comes in to that email address because it matters to me. And I think that we can do this together. Let's make ADHD easier. Law is hard enough. Thank you for sharing your attention so generously. The single best thing you can do to support the JDHD podcast and this community is to help spread the word far and wide. Please tell your friends and your firms about it. Subscribe, rate, and review us in your favorite podcatcher. And please join our email list at thejdhd.com slash start. We can't wait until next time. Let's make ADHD easier. Law is hard enough.